Promises made are not necessarily promises kept. How many promises have you made and never kept? I can hang my head for failing to do things I've promised, like praying for someone who's down or sick or helping in a special way. Ivy League dropout and billionaire founder of Facebook, Hermeta, Mark Zuckerberg, is not by nature a public person. He's more private. He enjoys his meetings small. But last week, he did what he doesn't like to do. He traveled to Washington, one of those public congressional hearings. There were tense moments, but Zuckerberg took the opportunity to ask forgiveness from families whose children were affected by abuse on Facebook, some even taking their own lives. But will his promise keep? Now think about Jesus. In the New Testament, there were at least 30 I will or I promise promises from our Lord. One favorite? I will return and take you with me. Count on Jesus to keep his promises. Welcome to Haven Today here on Monday. I'm Charles Morris sharing the great story that's all about Jesus as we start a new series today called The Promise of Jesus. David Wollen, our new president and speaker. I'm really looking forward to this series as we continue to think more deeply about Jesus. Charles, I'm looking forward to this too. You know, all last week talking with our friend Johnny Erickson Tata and drawing from her new book about what it means to practice the presence of Jesus, we just felt like we needed to keep this going. But I I do think there's one thing we wanted to state clearly at the start of this week thinking about that book Johnny wrote, and that's that she's not talking about something mystical. Johnny did not go off the deep end. No, practicing the presence of Jesus is a turn of phrase to remind us of a biblical reality, that Jesus is near to us at all times through his Spirit, and that's one of the most precious promises in Scripture. And Jesus always keeps his promises, and that's something Johnny's thinking a lot about these days. She's clinging to the promises of Jesus, drawing on his strength, and finding joy every day in him as she continues to live her life in her wheelchair. We look at a rose, and we just don't admire how it was pruned or shaped or its color. We just don't focus on the rose. We look at that rose and say to it, oh my goodness, little rose, Look at how you reflect the glory of your creator. Look at the colors he designed into you. Look at the beauty he invested in you that I might give him praise and glory for this special moment. Look at you, Rose. You, you are a part of the glory of God. I mean, this is, you might think it's silly. This is the way I think. This is the way I talk. It's the way I live. And David and Charles, it gives me such pleasure. Mm-hmm. I, I think the Christian's joy is a sense that somehow they have made it their ambition to be pleasing to God, and in return, they sense that pleasure. And that's the basis for our Christian joy. Seeking to please the Lord in all things, Johnny Erickson Tata. She's full of joy, and it's an infectious joy at that. So, on today's program, we're going to be thinking about the giver of joy itself, and that would be Jesus. Just before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed for himself, he prayed for his followers, and then he prayed for you and me. So stay with us as we turn to John 17 today in search of Jesus and his joy. And before we do that, let me just say that David Wollen and I met up with Johnny a few weeks ago. 
We both started reading her new book, which we have available for you today, The Practice of the Presence of Jesus. In many ways, it was convicting. Every day, we need to draw near to grow closer to Christ. How often we try to live for Christ without spending time with Christ, to learn from him, to overcome the trials of life's journey. We've learned a lot from Johnny and her faith, and you can too. Come to our website after the program, read a sample to see your great need answered, and make your gift to Haven Today. But be sure and ask for your copy of Johnny's new book at haventoday.org. That's haventoday.org. Or call us and get ready for a rich spiritual blessing. 865-HAVEN. 865-HAVEN. And now let's get the program started. Caleb and Casey and King of Kings. To reveal the kingdom coming And to reconcile the lost To redeem the whole creation You did not despise the cross For even in your suffering You saw to the other side Knowing this was our salvation Jesus, for our sake you died This is Haven Today, and the promise of Jesus is what we're calling this program as we opened with a song from an album called Glorious Day, King of Kings by Caleb and Casey. I'm Charles Morris with David Wollen, and last week we started thinking about the presence of Jesus. Our Lord has this comforting presence for his people. He gives us hope when we're hopeless. And he brings us joy when we have sorrow. And when we're down, he lifts our heads high. But 
that's not all. When we enjoy, when we relish the presence of Jesus, we're also reminded of the promise of Jesus. Or might I even say the promises of Jesus or the I wills, as I mentioned earlier. When we spend time with Christ, we are encouraged to trust in the promises that he left us. So why don't you join me? Let's spend some time with Jesus this week, looking at John 17. Now, it's been called the High Priestly Prayer. It's the longest prayer recorded by Christ in all the scripture. It makes sense. In John 17, Jesus intercedes for his people, just like a priest would. But a friend of mine, the late pastor, James Montgomery Boyce in Philadelphia, gave this chapter another name, the true Lord's Prayer. Do you remember all the times when Jesus went alone to pray? He does it often in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You've probably thought to yourself like I have, what is he saying to his heavenly father during those long hours? I think he may have prayed for some of the things we read about recorded in John 17. In this Lord's Prayer, we're given a unique look into the heart of our Lord. And that which is most important to him is on display in this prayer. It's moments before his arrest. What was he thinking about? God the Father, his 12 disciples, and even every single believer who would come after the disciples. Yes, even you, if you know Jesus. John 17, verses 1 and 2. Jesus looked up to heaven and cried out in prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So let me just ask both of us, how do you normally begin your prayers? You may begin with the A in Acts, adoration, praising God for his character, his loving kindness, for example. But this prayer by Jesus begins differently. He begins with the hour has come. There's a sense of urgency to this prayer. You might understand this. It's similar to when you come rushing into the kids' room and tell your children, it's time. It wakes everyone in the room up. The disciples were nearby to hear this prayer, and I think it probably woke some of them up. What hour was this? It was the hour of Jesus' suffering and death. Throughout John's Gospel, We hear that it was not yet his hour. Some of his disciples even heard him say it wasn't yet his hour, but now it was time for him to be handed over. And Jesus prayed, knowing what would come soon. And he made this striking request to his Father in heaven, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Jesus, the Messiah, asked to be glorified, to be clothed with splendor and honor. Now, that's an appropriate request as God's son. He's worthy of that glory. But he didn't ask out of selfish ambition. He desired to be glorified, that he would in turn glorify the Father. But will Jesus be glorified? The hour of suffering has come, after all. He's been dealing with the religious leaders of the day all throughout John's Gospel, They've been butting heads, and rather than wanting to glorify Jesus, the religious leaders have wanted to kill him, destroy him. And after Jesus asks the Father to glorify him, he then proceeds to say, 
for you granted him authority over all people. The Son should be glorified because he was given authority by the Father. But once again, there's some tension between the prayer and the reality. If Jesus has authority over all, then why was he subjecting himself to the ridicule and slander of the Pharisees? Why would he allow himself to be arrested one chapter later, chapter 18? He should be the chief prosecutor against the religious leaders. And instead, the one with authority over all people would be tried and then found guilty in a kangaroo court. The greatest injustice ever committed would occur in a matter of hours. The ruler of all the earth would die at the hands of sinful people. Why did this have to happen? Well, if you stop the passage there, I'm sure you might be wondering, where do you find the promise of Jesus? It seems like his prayer would remain unanswered, or worse, that the Father would respond with no. But we're going to find some good news here. In Jesus' prayer for himself, he has our good in mind, doesn't he, David? We do, Charles, and in this passage, especially our good and his glory. There's a lot of places in Scripture showing us that truth, but I don't think we see it anywhere more clearly than right here in John 17. And that's especially in these five verses we're looking at today. Verses 1 through 5, the word glory or glorify shows up five times. And anytime you find that kind of repetition in the Bible, it's time to break out your pen or highlighter because it's really, really important. As you were pointing out, this prayer is all about the glory of the Son and of the Father, each one glorifying the other. But Charles, you spoke a moment ago about the tension between the authority that Jesus has over all people and the fact that he's about to be killed by the authorities in Jerusalem. But there's no tension in John's gospel. In fact, these are linked. All we have to do is look at what Jesus said about his life and death earlier in John 10. He said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And Jesus uses that authority to do that and to give his people eternal life. But that raises the question, what is eternal life? Well, if you or I went out on the street and we started asking people this question, what kind of answers would we get? One person might say, eternal life? That's a myth religious people believe. Another person might say the obvious, eternal life means you live forever. Or you might hear what a neighbor told me recently. He said, I just hope the big guy upstairs will be happy with how I've lived my life and will let me into heaven. That's all any of us can hope for. Well, are any of those answers right? I hope you can give an emphatic no. Jesus puts it simply. He says, and Charles, this is the good news. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now that is an exclusive statement. No room for counterpoint or caveat. Eternal life comes from knowing God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But, and this is really important, what does it mean to know this God? What kind of knowledge are we talking about? Charles, you mentioned the late James Montgomery Boyce, and he pointed out that there are at least four kinds of knowledge with respect to knowing God, and three of them fall woefully short. Here's the first. 
awareness knowledge. Well, did you know this is an election year in the U.S.? That's awareness knowledge. Or, sir, did you know the speed limit in this neighborhood is 25 miles an hour? Well, that's a lack of awareness knowledge, but you get the point. And there's another type, information knowledge. This kind is more detailed, a precise knowledge of the facts, even expertise. How many biblical scholars are there out there with expertise in the text of Scripture, but yet do not believe a word they say? This kind of knowledge does not save a person. And according to Romans 1, there's another type, a third type of knowledge that also leaves a person without excuse. That's experience knowledge. And I like the way Boyce put it. I'll just quote him. We might think of this as the experience of a person who goes out into the fields around his house on a summer night and looks up into the twinkling heavens and returns saying, I have experienced God. Do not give me any of your theology. I do not want words. I have experienced the real thing. Well, that's very common these days, isn't it? But what does Romans 1 tell us? That since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. But praise God, there is a fourth kind of knowledge, and that's the knowledge Jesus gives us. It's the knowledge of a personal encounter, of a relationship. You see, like Isaiah in the Old Testament, if the living God makes himself known to you, you get an immediate sense of his holiness, an awful sense of your great depth of sin, and with that, you know you have great personal need. That you're bankrupt. You can't help yourself. And that's the point. That's why eternal life is something that only Jesus can give. But eternal life is not a commodity. It's found in a person. And the language used by Jesus to describe this beautiful mystery is language of union. He says, you and me and I and you. So the life that we receive from Christ flows directly from him and into us. Now, having said this, having given this great promise of eternal life, Jesus declares back to his father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus is declaring that his work is complete. He's anticipating his return to the Father and to have restored to him the glory that was his into eternity past together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Eternal life is not simply a ticket into heaven. It's entry into the eternal fellowship of the Godhead. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify
From Cahaba Park Church in Birmingham, Alabama, the corner room, singing for us John 17, 1 through 11. You're in a haven today called the Promise of Jesus. I'm Charles Morris with David Wallen, and as I said earlier in the program, we've been reading Johnny Erickson Tata's new book. Let me just say this we've been 
basking in Johnny's new book, The Practice of the Presence of Jesus. And uh, David, I think you've probably felt the same way. Hmm. We get busy, we get distracted. It's so easy just to do life, even the life of ministry, mm-hmm. rather than to just spend time and just be with Jesus. That's right, Charles. But if we feel that lack, it's a gift from God, because when we're thirsty, that's when we go looking for living water. And Johnny, I think, wants to encourage us to do that, not to settle for too little, to use her words, to seek Jesus in every moment of our lives. And I'm confident, because I've been reading it, that her new book does exactly that, and it'll help anyone who reads it to do that, to find more time to be with Jesus and increase your desire and your love for him. So, with that in mind... Let me give you an invitation to come to our website. We've mentioned it, but we haven't really emphasized it much. Yes, you can read a sample from this new book there, but I would encourage you to watch the full-length interview that we have there with Johnny. We did a video with her, as well as the recorded interview as well. And when you go to our website, you can make your gift to Haven Today, but be sure and ask for your copy of Johnny's new book. Just go to haventoday.org. Do it right now before you forget. Haventoday.org. And as I said earlier, if you want, you can call us and get ready for a rich spiritual blessing. Our number is 800-65-HAVEN. That's 800-65-HAVEN. I'm Charles Morris. And I'm David Wolin. Thanks so much for joining us. Won't you come back again tomorrow on Tuesday? But again, together... We're going to practice the presence of Jesus in light of John 17, in light of the great story. That's all about Jesus here on Haven Today. For your walk with Jesus, I'm David Wolin with Haven Today, inviting you to anchor your day in God's Word. Heads up, men. Valentine's Day is just around the corner. And for some of us, that day is a close second to the importance of remembering your wedding anniversary. But a word for husbands out there, including me, don't wait for a special day to be proactive in loving and pursuing your wife. Do that today. Paul instructs husbands in Ephesians 5, saying, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The love of Jesus for the church was costly. And as Jesus said, he came to serve, not to be served. So let's follow his example. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Grow in your walk with Jesus with Anchor Devotional. Visit GetAnchor.com.